Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Pulling the Strings podcast. As always, powered by Puppet. My name is Ben Ford. I am our Developer Relations Director here at Puppet, and pretty active in the community as Ben for 2K. We may have talked already. Today, we're talking with Paul Reed. Uh, he's a principal sales engineer here at Puppet, and I got to warn you, he told me uh, before this that uh, because he's a sales engineer, he knows how to talk. So we may end up uh, going down some rabbit holes here. So Paul and I go way back and, and we kind of sort of share some of the same juvenile, cynical humor, you know. And lots of times when we've got businessy sort of meetings happening, we've got this back channel going. There's kind of like a mystery science theater 3000 uh, banter, sort of poking good hearted, snarky fun, you know, as one does. So I'll probably get some kind of jab on Slack at some point. So if I go really quiet for a second, don't worry. I'm just stifling a giggle or, or, or something. So how's it going, Paul? Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. It's going great. Thanks for uh, for having me on the podcast today, Ben. For sure. Yeah, I guess I could give myself a, a bit of an intro here. So um, folks, I'm Paul Reed, uh, as Ben mentioned, uh, principal sales engineer for I guess I'm, I'm working in the Northeast mostly, but uh, I'll help out anybody who's uh, who's got, got a need. Um, I am Canadian, if you haven't picked up yet by the accent, but uh, don't hold that against me. <laughs> I heard it in some of the, the aboots earlier. No do to boot it. <laughs> <laughs> or I get I get that. I get Blame Canada. I get you you name it. It's uh, it's all fun. It's all in good fun. As you, as you said, Ben, you know, we joke uh, quite often through Slack and, you know, I might stifle a, a laugh here and there again as well. So good. Uh, I was talking with Alex Hinn. He's a, a product manager who also was, is up in Canada. He's uh, Toronto, uh, I believe. And this uh, winter, he actually built an ice rink in his, uh, in his backyard. Have you ever done something like that? I haven't, but uh, Alex lives about 19 kilometers from me. That's, uh, I want to say, about 12 miles. So I should go over to his place next winter and have myself escape. There you go. <laughs> so... Let's start with the, the kind of the story around the CentOS uh, end of life. It was, I remember when it first hit and I was kind of surprised and, and shocked. And I was like, I don't even know how to respond to this. So could you tell us uh, kind of what happened and, and a little bit of the, the background there? Yeah. So um, I think a lot of people were taken aback by the situation that happened with CentOS being discontinued in terms of, you know, CentOS core being a downstream version of Red Hat that people could use for free. A lot of people, you know, eventually settled on Alma or Rocky or other variations of Linux, but it was, you know, um, a long time coming and, and you know, none of those solutions were ready at the time. So when you say downstream, uh, what, what does that mean in, in context of uh, RHEL here? You'd said upstream and downstream earlier yeah, when we were Yeah, talking. absolutely. So the um, downstream represents a version that is created based off of the packages that are from the stable Red Hat enterprise release, whereas an upstream version are basically the development channels uh, of Red Hat that are uh, built before the stable release of Red Hat. Gotcha. So like upstream feeds into RHEL, which then gets distributed out and people use it uh, in their production environments, where downstream is like comes out of RHEL and people can choose to use that instead of RHEL uh, when they deploy it in, into uh, to production, right? Exactly. I mean, you could, you could think of it as, you know, upstream versions being development streams and downstream versions being production stable streams. Is that why they decided to, to call it stream or is, uh, what, what does the name stream release mean anyways? Yeah, I, I think that was just a way to differentiate between uh, you know, the old CentOS 8, which they're now referring to as CentOS 8 core, 
and the upstream version, which is CentOS 8 stream of the same, you know, the same major version release. Interesting. I didn't, I didn't actually realize that. So core and stream, like theoretically are kind of the same thing if you go back far enough. Um, but now they've diverged and, and stream is, is upstream of rel. Yep, exactly. And core is basically just kind of legacy. Yep, exactly. Right on. So how, how does that impact uh, production use of uh, CentOS then? Well, it, it really depends because that could mean something different depending on the organization that you work for or you know what's acceptable to, to you as a user. Um, CERN, for instance, they have decided to actually go with CentOS 8 Stream as their uh, default operating system as opposed to using uh, one of the variants or even flipping over to Red Hat directly. You know, it really depends on the level of, of, you know, acceptability of risk, I guess you could say, that you want to have in your environment. There's nothing wrong with CentOS 8 Stream as an operating system. In fact, it's very much like Fedora. And we know there's a lot of people that use Fedora as an upstream version of RHEL today. Yeah, I, I was kind of wondering, like, at this point now, what is the real difference between CentOS Stream and uh, uh, Fedora? Yeah, um, not much, to be honest. Um, so they're both upstream variants of RHEL. I think Fedora is a little bit more on the like the development side, where it's it, you know less stable. I think you could say than what CentOS would be, and then obviously now CentOS being the stream edition is less stable than what Red Hat Enterprise is. Yeah, that makes a, a lot of sense. I sort of have gotten the impression over the years that Fedora is kind of like the more community or uh, oriented uh, uh, form of the the Red Hat family, where the entire stack of RHEL and CentOS and whatever else variants are the more enterprise oriented. Is that reasonably accurate, you think? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, the customers that I see that are using all of these variants, they typically use Fedora in some development capacity. Uh, and then they were using CentOS as their production, but now you know have either shifted to something else or, or RHEL directly. And, and you did mention that there are now a handful of downstream RHEL alternatives, which would take the place of what CentOS used to be. Um, and the two that I'm familiar with now are Alma and Rocky. I think you uh, mentioned those two. But to be honest, I'll admit that I haven't actually been following their development as closely as maybe I should have. Um, could you talk a little bit about like like where they're positioned and what sort of differences they are and maybe how you might choose in between them or something? Yeah, um, you know, practically there's not much difference between the two. They are both separate community projects and, you know, the development resources that they have available are different, right? There's different contributors to each project. Um, but at the core, they're both based off of Red Hat Enterprise. Uh, so you get the same packages, the same, you know, baseline functionality. They're all EL8 variants at this point. So, you know, typically all packages that are for an EL8 RPM version of uh, a system, they would work on those, uh, those hosts. So really there's not much difference. I mean, for my functional testing, um, for everything that was practical to me, the only real difference was the logos. And I picked Rocky because I like the, <laughs> the, the logo better than the Alma logo. Um, <laughs> literally, I mean, the, um, the migration yeah. process was a little different. They had, um, you know, a little, uh, different, uh, uh, tools they, they each have for that. But, you know, in terms of the base packages and what the OS can do, it's basically the same. Honestly, I'm I'm pretty interested in seeing like how they diverge over time because I feel like uh, that answer is going to be very different in five years or or, or so. Um, but such is the development of open source, right? Absolutely. Um, I I have been seeing another name and I'm not really familiar with it, so uh, I'd love it if you could clarify. I've seen 
the the name Vault. So there's like CentOS Stream, which uh, uh, was the first thing announced. But then what is CentOS Vault? Ah, yes. Okay. So when CentOS 8 was archived, the CentOS 8 core, that is, uh, in favor of Stream, basically all of the uh, packages and the update servers and all of that stuff, all of it was moved to uh, an archive, which they call Vault. So CentOS 8 Vault is basically the last version that was ever and ever will be available of CentOS 8 core. Um, and in fact, it's very important. I'm glad you mentioned it because um, in order to update to any of the stream uh, edition or to Rocky or to Alma, you actually need to change your update servers to point to that vault uh, manually or using the task, which we could talk about in a minute, um, in order to get it to that latest version before the upgrade uh, will happen. Oh, I get it. So that that makes a lot of sense. It's like a, a point in time pin of getting you to the place where then you can choose where you want to go from there. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's actually kind of um, kind of not a good thing that Red Hat did to the community in moving that over to Vault, because what they basically did is broke updates on any existing CentOS 8 core machines that were out there that weren't already at the latest version. So, you know, wherever they happened to be at that point in time, they could no longer get updates, which left them vulnerable to, you know, security uh, vulnerabilities. They just and, yeah, exactly. The updates just stopped. <laughs> so not, not fun. So how, how were they, I mean, this is kind of like tangent and, and maybe we don't need to go there or not, but how were they expecting that you would go from the way that you've been working all this time to the new stream? Like, was there a migration path that was put together for that? Yeah, Red Hat Professional Migration Services, which is a paid for service. Um, I, I guess that was the official way to do it. Now that said, you know, you could sidestep that by uh, manually changing your update repos to the vault versions, then doing the update to get to the latest version, and then choose your own adventure from there. Oh, that seems like a real stumbling block. I, I'm glad that I'm glad this, that people have written some uh, tools to automate all of this. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, actually, that does bring up another question. And, and do you anticipate very many people sort of like migrating away from RHEL or this whole Red Hat family because of this? You know, I, I do. I mean, there's obviously going to be the camp of people that decide that, hey, you know what, now is the time to get official support for my operating system and migrate directly to Red Hat Enterprise. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's an amazing operating system. And, you know, with, without that, you wouldn't have any of these other variants um, that are free to use. You know, so absolutely, we need to support them in, in some capacity. Absolutely. Now, that said, that's it's not an option for everyone. I mean, there are some people that, you know, just for various reasons can't use uh, Red Hat Enterprise, whether it's, you know, um, cost of licensing or it's just practicality. So in those cases, yeah, I mean, you know, you'll see a lot more of an uptick uh, of, of going to one of the other variants. Now, you know, prior to, to I guess, this, this critical event, uh, CentOS 8 was a clear choice in, you know, that rel variant that everyone used um you know th there are others out there as well i mean there's you know there's uh, scientific linux there's uh, oracle linux there's there's you know a, a few others that are based on you know red hat package management system and, and the same packages but up until now you know there hasn't really been that divergence so i i, I see yep. you know like you're saying it'd be interesting to see where rocky and alma go in the in the future like three to five years yeah, it was kind of funny watching everybody kind of swarm and, and write their uh, CentOS to whatever distribution uh, guides and scripts and whatnot. So I remember, this is kind of a little tangent, a, a personal story here, but I remember like way back in the day, one of my first big migrations was actually away from Debian 
to this new distro, kind of like very short-lived, a new distro that uh, Ian Murdoch built called Progeny. And it, it kind of, I think it was called Progeny, uh, sort of like built on the ideas that Debian had, but a commercial, commercially supported company. And they, they were, in a lot of the ways, the same kind of story as like the, the Red Hat family and RHEL and CentOS and Fedora and, and everything. But it was before a lot of the modern automation and config management tools and all existed. And that migration, I don't even remember why we did it, to be honest, but uh, that migration was is a real beast. Like we were eventually successful, but it was a real ride. Uh, a lot of manual fixing and going in and running tools and like fixing a, a, a broken set or something. And I don't know if there were really better options at the time, but like, like that would be an anomaly, I think. And and there's so many uh, tools today that make that far less stressful. And and looking back, I'm like, man, that was that was a real wild west time. I'm I'm really glad that I won't ever have to do that again. And one of the things that the people have built to, to make these things easier was like that module you were uh, talking about earlier. Could you tell us how like a little bit about the module and how it works? Absolutely. Um, but before I get into that, you know, you, you tangentially just got me nostalgic. Um, so where <laughs> I started with Linux, you know, it was in the Mandarin. Oh, tell me it wasn't days. Oh, no, 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 no. Way before that. Um, and then, I, you know, a, a couple of years later, I probably got into the Gen 2 project. So absolutely everything was built by source on every machine. So if you can imagine going through, you know, all of your applications and everything. Yeah, th- th- those were not fun days. I'm glad that we're you know, in a state where we are today, where we've got the right tooling, the right automation to, you know, do this stuff, not only do this stuff correctly, but do it at scale. Right. Yeah. And repeatably too. So it's like, we wrote, like, like I mentioned, there were SEDs that would break and everything. And we didn't have any way of knowing it. Like it, they would run and they would be successful and then stuff would just break and we'd have to go figure <laughs> out what broke. Yeah, exactly. Um, so you mentioned modules. So I'll, I'll, I'll kind of get, I'll cut to the chase and get to, uh, to talking about the module. So I wrote really a quick puppet module that's a collection of tasks that kind of help with the process of migration from, um, well, the first thing it does is there's a task to upgrade your CentOS 8 core machines that are still running out there, if, if you happen to have them, uh, to the vault. Uh, version of the upstream repositories. Or I say upstream repositories. I don't mean upstream in terms of the version <laughs> of Linux, but I do mean for for their up, update services. Um, so it'll switch it over to Vault for you, so that you can then run your Yammer DNF updates uh, successfully. Uh, so the first task right there, you know, just run that against all of your your uh, ailing CentOS 8 hosts, and your updates will start working again. Of course, they will only update right to you know the last version of CentOS 8 core that was available. Um, but that'll get you at least to the point where you can make a decision of where to go to from there, which brings me to the other tasks within the module, which uh, will help you run through the process of migrating to either uh, Rocky or Alma, depending on, on which uh, which version you want to go to. Again, there's you know other choices out there aside from those two operating systems, and you can see how I wrote those tasks. There, you know, the code's freely available, and you can you know choose your own adventure, even write your own task if you wanted to go to something like uh, an Oracle or Scientific Linux or even through Red Hat 8 uh, directly. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of creeped on the, the module a little bit and saw that for completeness sake, you also have this uh, to CentOS Stream and to RHEL uh, in case anybody wants to like go with those and, and uh, upgrade that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, fair warning, I only tested it on a few uh, VM instances, so it may not, you know, 
work uh, uh, everywhere, but you know, testing your own test servers first. And if you like the process, then feel free to use it. Giant disclaimer warning here. Giant disclaimer. I mean, you know, you could seriously screw up your environment with this. So, you know, know what you're doing. Don't just run this on, you know, all of your production SQL servers, for instance. And one of the neat things about these tasks uh, I, I looked at is that you didn't really actually write the scripts yourself. You didn't do. You didn't write the the migration itself. You wrapped the upstream uh, uh, scripts, like the one to migrate to Alma or to uh, to Rocky or whatnot. And that to, to me, that seems like a much more maintainable solution because somebody else, like the the team that is supporting Rocky, is is also making this update script for you and and. You don't have to go in and, and replicate everything. Yeah. Could you tell us like a little bit about how that works? And you sort of hinted at maybe doing that same idea for using like the uh, uh, CentOS to OEL script or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so my you know reuse where you can, right? If if those you know projects. So in, in the case of uh, Rocky Linux, like they produce a, a GitHub repo, I believe it is that has all of the migration scripts and stuff there. So why not just use what they've already produced? So in that case, yeah, I, I just wrote the task so that it goes out, runs the, the Git clone on that repo, and then runs the latest version of that script. So, you know, if there's any problems, you can uh, talk to that team instead of me. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else's problem. Yeah, but I mean, as, a, as an example, though, I mean, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's a very simple task, and it really showcases the ability to do this kind of stuff at scale. Right. Like, you know, I, I mean, not one of us in IT hasn't Googled for an answer for something and, you know, just show me the the three lines of code that I need to do what I need to do. So just grab that, wrap it in a task, and you're good to go at scale. Absolutely. And 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 it's like the uh, abstraction is like they're responsible for building the tool that upgrades a machine so that lets you uh, take this machine and turn it into this other kind of machine. But it's your responsibility, and now ours with this module, uh, to uh, take that and, and turn it into something that you can do, uh, replicate across your entire infrastructure, right? Exactly. You know, I, I work with a lot of customers that, you know, they're not dealing with 100 machines or 200 machines. They're literally dealing with thousands of these. So when you know, they have to do a migration, especially of an operating system, that's not an easy task, right? Not easy, especially if you have to go in and, you know, do them by hand or run even a script <laughs> on each of them individually. I mean, it takes an eon to, to get through or an army of, of people to go through and do it. And then, you know, you mentioned consistency earlier. That's a huge thing is, you know, human error when you do it in in, uh, in people terms. So yeah, remove all of that reduces the risk. I can just imagine this gigantic spreadsheet of hosts and then SSHing into them one at a time and like watching it run for 15 or 20 minutes and then marking it complete and going on to the next one. I do not miss those days. Oh, before I, uh, I worked for Puppet, I, I used to joke, I, uh, I worked for one of the large three-letter uh, companies out there and I would do uh, a lot of migration work. And the joke was that uh, I was going to put on my resume that I watch progress bars all day because <laughs> literally that's what I did. I mean, I'd have six, six instances on the screen at the same time doing things, but they'd all just have a progress bar at some you know certain point along the way during, during the migration. That sounds so miserable. So it, it sounds like that <laughs> was another life. <laughs> it, it, it sounds like that is sort of the benefit of using the puppet tasks for this. Is that uh, what you're thinking or are there other reasons for, for wrapping these scripts in, into tasks? Yeah, I mean, you know, consistency and scale, um, you know, for myself, it's also a reference right now. I don't have to go out to Stack Exchange or whatever it is on, online that Google points me at for these scripts because I have a local reference that I've used and I trust. And I like that 
if you have something that you're using like PE or whatnot, you could you can put it in the console and then get reports where you're not looking at one node or 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 whatnot. You're not absolutely yeah. You've got this whole list of all the, all the reports that are that are coming back, and you know what failed, and you know uh, whatnot. Well, and and I was going to say, you, you know, the the whole audit trailing thing. Like, if you do have an army of people that are running these tasks against thousands of endpoints, you'll know who did which ones, when they did it, so you have that reporting, so that you know you're not tracking this on a spreadsheet that maybe somebody forgot to fill out, and then you know you run the migration on something that's already been run. It's just, you know, it probably won't screw anything up, but it is a waste of that person's time. So you're, you're saving, you know, overhead there, tremendous overhead. That is a, a, a really good point. And th- that kind of maybe brings up another idea of like, how do you know which machines you should run this task on? And like, how do you know that you haven't missed any or that you haven't skipped uh, over any? Yeah, and exactly. You need you need some form of report that'll show you that that's what the PE console can can do. Now, I mean, there's other ways you can do that as well. Like uh, these tasks come in a, you know, they're just a set of tasks and you run one before you run the other. But with Puppet Plans, you can actually run this stuff sequentially. You could build a task that went out and talked to, say, a ServiceNow or some other type of ticketing system that would open and close a ticket for you. So not only do you have like the workflow to do the migration, but you have also now automated the workflow for tracking all these changes. Um, and, you know, when you're doing this stuff again at scale, that's, that's so important to be able to automate that workflow. Yeah. So much time. Most definitely. Um, so I saw in, in your repo, I saw a quick uh, PQL query to identify all, all the CentOS nodes. Um, is that like, can we trust that that facts are going to be updated and whatnot? So you can look at facts and say, show me all the CentOS 8 machines and then show me all the machines that are updated and, and all of that. Is that something that yeah. you'd use for uh, tracking progress and making sure you didn't miss machines? 100%. So what happens as part of the, the task, um, by default, uh, there's a reboot that happens um, after the migration. You know, you could queue it up and wait for a maintenance window if you want, so it won't officially take effect until then. But after that reboot uh, occurs, actually, in fact, the next puppet run that occurs regardless, we'll update those facts uh, so that you can, you know, you could use that as tracking. So something that's really cool is uh, we have a new product called HDP. Um, may not be its official name when it goes to, to market, but what it does is it tracks changes over time. So you'll actually see graphs with a drawdown of number of, you know, CentOS 8 hosts and an uptick of number of, you know, say Rocky or, or Alma Linux hosts as a, as a result. So you can see your burndown rates for your migration right, uh, right in that tool. I mean, you could do that as well through Splunk or any other data visualization tool. But yeah, I think that's really cool to be able to track projects like this. Like you said, that that Excel sheet. Yeah, I, I really like that idea because it it can show you not not only is it something tactical that you can use uh, to uh, as you're doing this thing as you, as you're uh, making progress through the the migration, but it's something that you can surface and you can show it as as a report to the the decision makers in your business that are sort of tracking the long term uh, bigger position of your infrastructure too. You know, kind of show the value of of, of your team and, and show how quickly you're able to respond. You know, show all those metrics that uh, the pointy hair people like to look at. <laughs> yeah, I geek out over those metrics too. It's uh, it's it's fun to watch, to be honest. I mean, especially if you know you are doing something at scale like this, you, you really see the impact that you have directly by just writing a few lines of, of task code. Um, you know, to accomplish big big things. That is really cool. So, how does somebody get started with this module? Um, so this module can be simply added to your Puppet Enterprise infrastructure um, in your Puppet file. Uh, so the instructions are on the module page uh, in the Forge. 
doesn't necessarily mean you have to use it through Puppet Enterprise. I think the tasks themselves will work through Bolt as well. So if you're a Bolt user, um, you can use the the same module, and uh, uh, those tasks will be you know represented through like a Bolt task run. So it's basically just like any other task. You just install the module, get it to the right place on on your machine, and run it. Exactly. And if you if if you're using PE, you can stick it on the uh, primary server and and interface with it through the console. But if you have developers working out of their own workstations, you could still do it that way as well with uh, Bolt and SSH, if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. But the the downside of using Bolt is you don't get all that the benefit of all that tracking, right? The logging, the output uh, saved into the the database. So I personally like to do it through PE, uh, just because it does retain the output of that task. So if something does go wrong. And, you know, my terminal window is closed because of a security timeout or something like that. I still have access to all of that output. Maybe there's a failure messages, errors, warnings, something that I can go in and clean up to try again. So, yeah, that, that would be a real reason to do it through Pub Enterprise. But, yeah, like you said, there's there's no reason why you can't run these tasks through Bolt. If You know, if you only have a handful of servers and you're not concerned about the output or audit trailing or any of that, then, yeah, absolutely. Run it through Bolt. Right on. That's pretty cool. So if you... If, if, if you're working with different environments, like you've got like dev and staging and prod and all of that, do you have tactics for uh, handling all these migrations for the different uh, sort of environments? Yeah. I mean, you know, typical for any type of stage deployment, right? You would want to, you know, start with your dev servers, start with the easy things, run a few tests before running anything, you know, at scale. Uh, and then when you do things at scale, you know, run it for, for one environment. We've got con- concurrency settings in the products as well. So you can limit the number that are actually happening at a time. Um, and then, you know, monitor it as it goes through and, and watch for failures. Uh, if there are failures, maybe you want to stop the task before it, it goes through any further just to analyze that and maybe correct what, uh, what, what the issue is. And you can use other tasks or puppet code or anything to, to kind of remediate that type of stuff at scale as well. Uh, but yeah, I mean, just a you know typical staged approach, wave after wave, all the way, and, you know, doing your production stuff last, so that you've worked out all the bugs. Right on. I think we're uh, coming a little bit uh, towards the end here, up to closing here. Um, it, it, it sounds like what a lot of what we're saying is is the puppet tasks, whether you do it by hand or or running it through PE for the tracking and auditing and, and reporting, using them effectively really helps with taking these little migration tasks, like individual scripts and running them at scale across your infrastructure and kind of like multiplying the effect that you can that you can have and even if you actually do have to monitor it you can use uh like you were saying just a minute ago you can use tasks to see what is happening and see how changes are are uh, rolling out across your your infrastructure and whether that's migrating an operating system like we're talking about today or any other things. I mean, I, I can see like doing uh, database schema upgrades or, or things like that, uh, that this way. The idea of, of taking a tool that already exists and wrapping it into a task to like, I don't know, infrastructureize it. Uh, <laughs> see, I just made up a word today. Um, it. Makes it a lot easier to, to uh, take those things and, and just uh, ramp them up to, to uh, scale. Uh, do you have anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you basically nailed it when you puppetize these types of things, um, whether it's infrastructure eyes or task eyes or any <laughs> other eyes that you want to do, you're, you're reducing the risk, right? Um, like I, I build tasks for anything that I'm going to do more than once. Um, so you get rid of the risk of, of, you know, 
inconsistency, human error. Um, you add the capability of logging and audit trailing. Um, you know, it's so important. And you can't really, you know, whether it's an infrastructure of like 10 to 100 machines or if it's hundreds of thousands, like you, you need to use the right tool for the right job. And this stuff, I think, is uh, I, I wish I had this stuff 10 years ago. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And it's it's really neat. I, li- I like that idea that, that you that you mentioned there of, of taking taking scripts to do a thing and just kind of bolting on all of the other stuff like the the reporting and the auditing to those exist, existing scripts instead of reinventing that every single time. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, don't don't even get me into the downstream stuff that you could do, like, you know, sending it off to Splunk and uh, ServiceNow and all the other great integrations that, uh, you know, just extend even beyond what we've talked about. Yeah, I've, I've been getting uh, started with, with some of the uh, data visualization of our uh, content across the Forge. And it, like, my brain is spinning with all the ideas of, of what we can do with, with data. Yeah, I think we're all going to be metric geeks after this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the industry is growing up. You know, that's that's a that's a sign. We're starting to be able to to look at numbers and track numbers and and uh, track our improvement. You know, if you can't track it, you can't you can't improve it. Exactly. Cool. So I will make sure to drop a link to your module uh, into the show notes uh, when we publish it. Um, are you open to collaboration, like uh, for people to file pull requests or issues or anything? Absolutely. Um, and just to be blatantly honest, I might not see it. So just also shoot me an email if you have uh, have done anything in terms of a, of a PR um, against that uh, that repo. Uh, but yeah, more than welcome to uh, to have anybody contribute if they feel they can add uh, any value to it. Cool. Well, that means that we're going to have to put your email in the, the show notes too. So I hope you I hope you know what you just did. Um, it's been for two. No, <laughs> uh, so, can you be reached in Slack or anything else too? Are you are you active? Yeah, I am active in the community Slack. Um, not so much in the channels, but if you ping me one on one, I absolutely will respond. Cool, and that's uh, that's PSR in the community Slack, and and uh, we'll Correct. we'll drop that into the notes too. Um, yeah, and, and I don't know if this is is really feasible or not, so feel free to shoot me down. But I think it'd be really neat to get some sort of uh, office hour one or two set up so that you can sort of help guide people through the, this upgrade process and uh, migrating to uh, non-EOL uh, uh, distributions. But we can talk offline about that. No, absolutely, be willing to help people if they're if they're stuck. Obviously, right on. Well, thanks for showing up. Thanks for uh, for coming here. This is uh, really informative and, and super helpful. It. it kind of cleared up a lot of, you know, vague ideas or, or misconceptions that I've had about the, the whole uh, process. Um, and thanks for everybody for, for listening. So that is a wrap today. And again, thanks everybody for showing up. Uh, and thank you for being here on our Pulling the Strings podcast. Thanks for having me.